The following recording is offered by the Village Zendo. For more information, please visit villagezendo.org. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you for the kind uh, introduction. And um, I want to thank Enkyo um, for uh, the uh, uh, invitation. We had a great um, Dogen event uh, in July, and uh, uh, we're planning one for next summer. And um, also Howard was uh, very helpful in, in organizing this event. So uh, what I'd like to do today is to yeah, have it, have it uh, be uh, somewhat in, interactive, so please feel free to ask questions. And, um, you know, I, I thought um, if for some of the poetry, um, you know, I invite people to, to read a few, uh, to, to volunteer to uh, read, read a line or read the poem or, or, or suggest an interpretation as we work our way through uh, this document. Um, it's a long document. I'm not going to um, give you a quiz at the end, so don't worry about that part. Um, and I'm not going to necessarily follow the exact order that's here. This was pulled together from a couple of other files that I had, and uh, uh, I, I may uh, I, I may move around um, uh, depending on uh, the theme um, in in different ways. Um, so the um, uh, our 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 basic idea for today is to consider. Uh, some of Dogen's poetry, but also poetry written um, about Dogen or in interpreting Dogen, um, some by Dogen, some where Dogen is reacting to other uh, Zen uh, poets, especially uh, uh, some Chinese um, uh, predecessors, um, other kinds of Zen poetry from his era or that may have influenced him. Maybe he was reading in China or um, some other Japanese poets that were responding to some of his ideas. So it's a, it's a variety of items, and uh, you'll see that um, a theme that comes up on the first page of it is um, the idea of ambivalence about writing. And uh, this is uh, a main theme I want to bring out in terms of uh, Dogen's view of Zen. So I'm going to make some introductory comments about, about Zen and about Dogen, and most of you are, are going to be familiar with uh, a lot of these ideas, but I want to put it in a certain perspective that has been occurring to me um, uh, recently. And um, uh, by the way, let me, let me just say that um, on, a, on a recent update, um, I did have um, uh, two new publications this summer. Uh, one is called Do uh, Readings of Dogen's Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, and that's a, a book about uh, Shobo Genzo. And also, uh, Flowers Blooming on a Withered Tree, uh, and that is a translation of a, um, a verse comments on, on the Shobogenzo that were uh, written in 1329 by the fifth abbot of Aheji, a monk named Gion. And um, that's, um, that's on a special edition of the Shobogenzo known as the 60 uh, fascicle edition. And so that, some of that poetry is included in this file today. And uh, I'm going to be working on a, on a new book on, um, uh, the, <clears throat> on Dogen's um, uh, Chinese poetry. As some of you know, uh, many years ago, I translated Dogen's Waka poetry. And I have a couple of examples of that. Um, and, um, and I also included in that uh, some of Dogen's um, 
poetry written in classical Chinese, but, but I'm, I've been uh, getting more interested in the Chinese poetry in recent years, and um, there's a collection of 150 of Dogen's Chinese poems that was uh, collected in the 1700s by a famous monk named Menzan, and it's called Kuchu Gen, Mystery Within Words, or I actually called Wisdom Within Words. And it's, um, uh, so, so that's kind of what I'm gearing up for. And um, uh, this, uh, this talk is uh, hopefully um, uh, brings to light some of, the, some of the ideas that I've been working on and, and will continue to, to work on. So let me put in perspective some basic thoughts about uh, Dogen's view of uh, language and writing poetry in relation to Zen. Uh, more generally. And again, as many of you probably know, the um, Dogen was, um, was uh, well aware that um, a poetry could be a distraction and could detract from uh, the meditative experience. And poetry was something that you had to um, use with, uh, with caution. And in uh, one of his books, the Shobogenzo Zui Monkey, written in the, in the mid-1230s, it was a, a series of lectures in the mid-1230s, he does um, talk about um, the idea that uh, it's kind of a waste of time and, um, and you shouldn't get hung up on it. Um, now, Dogen has a lot of inconsistencies and apparent contradictions, so it's not so surprising that he would say that in one place and then Turns out that he wrote about 500 poems altogether if you add all, up all the Chinese and Japanese style poems in all of his collections. Um, and, and, and he wasn't the only uh, Zen um, um, master from that era, who, of course, who had those ambivalent thoughts about writing. So what, what was the point of writing? Well, one basic idea, of course, is that in the Chinese context, in the Song Dynasty, so from from 960 to uh, 1279, for those several hundred years. And Dogen um, goes to China um, towards the end of that in the 1220s. But in that whole era, part of the ascension of Zen as the you know, a kind of mainstream uh, religion in China and then transmitted to Japan is that it appealed to intellectuals, it appealed to the um, uh, scholar officials, it appealed to the literati. And um, uh, many of the Zen masters interacted with uh, secular leaders who were poets and artists and who um, enjoyed uh, the wisdom they gained from, from their Zen uh, colleagues. Um, and so the, um, uh, I think the um, uh, ambivalence uh, that I'm uh, referring to, we can see on page one, and if, you, uh, if I can ask you to scroll down a little bit, the one that says um, Bao Shen, yeah, that, that, let's stop there, right there. So the, the one that says uh, ambivalence meditation, or ambivalence regarding meditation, yes, uh, early Northern Song. So um, deep within the temple, this is, this, and you can see the, the style here, and, and, and a lot of these I have the, um, the Chinese or the pinyin. Um, so, uh, the style was either, uh, was generally four lines. So the, the four line or the quatrain was, was the main um, poetic style that was used. Uh, and um, the, the four lines have uh, either five characters or seven characters. Seven is more common, but this one has five. And uh, the, the uh, 
the lines have to have a lot uh, follow a lot of rhetorical rules and devices. Um, they have to have a rhyme scheme for the final syllable. They have to have tonal patterns for the um, characters inside each line. Uh, they have to have certain uh, thematic references. Um, there and and there, and there's supposed to be a, a one two three four pattern where a theme is introduced, it's developed, it's kind of contradicted or turned around, turned topsy turvy, and then there's a final uh, kind of concluding remark that may or may not uh, kind of wrap things up or refer directly to the uh, to the previous content. So just keep those rules in mind when we're when we're reading through some of these poems. But this one I think really speaks to the issue of the ambivalence deep within the temple. Uh, nobody speaks. All I hear is the sound of tall pines dripping with rain. Poetry comes about when I fall out of meditation and anxiety interferes with my peaceful repose. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting that he says that uh, the poetry uh, inspires me when I fall out of meditation. So it implies that there's some kind of contradiction or contrast or conflict between the state of mind in meditation and what happens out of meditation, and maybe the poetic impulse breaks the meditate, breaks the concentration, and maybe it's counterproductive. Um, but yet, you know, here he is writing the poem about that. So, um, you know, it's very, very interesting to me, and we'll, we'll see a couple of other examples where that contradiction is directly addressed. Uh, but let me bring up another idea for a moment. Um, there is a uh, famous Japanese folk song from the 12th century uh, that's cited in a uh, novel by um, the famous um, Japanese author Kawabata Yasunari, who, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1968. And um, uh, the, the Kawabata's novel is called The uh, Arch Bridge, so Solihashi, which refers to the Sumiyoshi uh, Taisha Shrine in Osaka uh, that goes back to the days of the Tale of Genji, so it may predate uh, this uh, particular song. It's not on the page, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, read the song from, some, from a separate document. Um, and the song um, that uh, Kawabata refers to um, was inspired because he grew up in Osaka. He grew up near this uh, shrine, and the shrine has this famous uh, you know, vermilion-colored arched bridge that's still there. It's been rebuilt over the years, but apparently it does go back about a thousand years. And um, he, you know, one of the comments Kawabata made was that uh, it's, it, when he was a kid, it was scarier to walk down the steps of the art shrine than up the steps of the art shrine. That's something people think about quite a bit. But he also, uh, in this novel published in 1947, he also cites this famous folk song. And oh, by the way, the folk song is inscribed on a stone that is in um, a Kondo uh, uh, temple. Uh, which is a Zen uh, temple in, um, in Kyoto near uh, the famous Nanzenji temple. Anyway, the folk song says, although the Buddha is not present, and I'm not going to try to sing it, but although the Buddha is not present, um, oh, excuse me, although the Buddha is ever present, although the Buddha is always present, and, and uh, you know, one interpretation would be the Buddha is eternal, um, uh, because he doesn't appear right in front of our eyes, on a soundless dawn, 
we think it's nothing other than a dream. And, um, you know, this was, uh, this folk song in the 12th century means it was uh, written before Zen uh, came to Japan uh, 100 years later. And, but it, I think it expresses uh, a feeling that uh, all, all the Japanese Buddhist uh, schools uh, try to deal with, which is, uh, well, how do you make that dream real? How do you actualize that dream? How do you bring the Buddhist presence uh, down to earth, so to speak, or make, make, it, make it feel present? So I, I think in, in Zen, of course, it could be said that uh, the twin pillars for doing that are Zazen and koans. But I, instead of saying koans, I, let, let's say more broadly, uh, use of language or speaking. So, uh, you know, Dogen, and, 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 um, but um, if we think of Zazen and, and speaking or sitting and speaking or just sitting and what I'll call for Dogen uh, just saying, meaning his forms of expression that are a um, manifestation of the meditation rather than that conflict, although he does express ambivalence. Um, you know, the, what is the relationship between those two uh, forms of practice? Um, now, I think, you know, if you pick up a book about, about Zen, um, obviously one of the most famous uh, passages is uh, special transmission outside the teaching without reliance on words or letters. So, you know, sometimes I say to my students, you know, okay, Dogen unifies body mind, but if you had to pick one over the other, 50.01% versus uh, 49.99%, you know, which would it be? Um, let's say you know, they're unified, but which one does he give priority to? Now, maybe that's not a fair question, but at the same time, I think it's trying to tease out some of the ideas. It's relevant to ask that. And if we ask that question about um, Zazen and, and, and the use of um, communication, uh, language speaking, uh, what Dogen calls dotoku, um, expressing the way in, in, as a chapter in the Shobogenzo. Um, uh, I, th I think if you, you know, if you pick up a typical Zen book, obviously, the priority is going to be Zazen because uh, uh, there's so much discussion about whether uh, literature writing expressing is relevant or is a distraction. But I think um, basically what I want to say about Dogen is that he does try to bring these two together. So on the one hand, uh, Zazen is uh, kind of stillness, uprightness, steadfastness, fixedness, um, un unswaying, unvarying concentration. And expression can be very um, spontaneous and, and can be very erratic and very contradictory. And, um, you know, there's the Zen koan collections like Blue Cliff Record that, um, refers over and over again to the idea that a true master must be able to startle the crowd. So he's got to use uh, words and letters that kind of gets people's attention. Whether they, uh, they, they shouldn't necessarily be attached to those words and letters, but it should stimulate them to think and rethink and to reverse the thinking and turn things upside down and topsy-turvy. And I think what Dogen is trying to do is to take Zazen and make it more than the steadfastness because he does talk about the um, dignified demeanor that must be maintained in all activities. And this is something that's stressed over and over again in Shobo Genzo, um, that um, all activities are an outgrowth of, uh, of, of the same 
um, state of mind as, as Zazen. So just sitting is not just sitting. So just sitting is doing all the chores and all the activities and all the discipline and the cooking and the cleaning and the washing and the wiping and the sweeping. And, um, and at the same time, uh, the speaking or just speaking, or since he uses the term non-thinking uh, in that famous passage about uh, meditation, in, in Fukan Zazengi and several of the Shobogenzo fascicles, he emphasized the word non-thinking. We could refer to his idea of just saying as a non-speaking, and that just speaking, just saying, or non-saying, or non-speaking is something that he wants to stress is uh, absolutely vital and is going to occur anyway, so you want to cultivate it and polish it and not try to suppress it, even though he does struggle. So to look at uh, the, the ambivalence, uh, in Dogen's case, if we could, um, well, okay, I think we have it on the page right now. So, um, just above the poem we, we read, um, ambivalence regarding uh, talent, and this is by Taoze uh, Yijing, and he was um, a, a Chinese Soto master in the uh, late 10 hundreds, who wrote a major koan collection, who was a predecessor of, um, you know, some of the teachers that are the, you know, the main teacher, the Dogen, uh, Ru Zheng, the Dogen studied with in China. And um, um, he says, um, though in the business of explicating emptiness, I cannot avoid being enslaved by my talents. I have been studying and practicing Zen meditation, yet somehow I remain preoccupied with literary pursuits. Um, again, this, this one has five characters per line. So, um, I think um, uh, the flavor here is a little bit different than the previous poem, where he says that um, he falls out of meditation and, into, and, and out of peaceful repose and into uh, the writing impulse. Uh, but in, in a way, it, it, it's making a very similar point. Um, should I be concerned with literary pursuits? Um, I should really be concerned with uh, emptiness and meditation. But this preoccupation, uh, you know, gets into my system. So let's look at um, a similar poem that Dogen um, says. And um, uh, would any, could I ask anybody who would like to read that one? That's the one that says ambivalence emotions by Dogen just, just below. Yeah. Would anybody, and maybe you can, um, by the way, um, I, maybe Bo Gusho could, um, if he's aware of anybody who, who wants to speak or can, people can chat to him if they uh, have a question or, yeah. Yeah, chatting would be best because with the shared screen, I can't see everyone. Right. I'm seeing Roshi raise her hand, and uh, anyone who needs to can unmute. And Roshi, would you say something if you need to? I was just going to volunteer to read uh, which poem. <laughs> okay. Um, so, ambivalence emotions, living for so long. Uh-huh. Living for so long in this world without attachments, since giving up using paper and pen, I see flowers and hear birds without feeling much. While dwelling on this mountain, I'm embarrassed by my meager efforts. Okay, good, thank you. Um, so, the, um, 
I know it's hard. I don't know how easy it is to establish the interactiveness in in the Zoom setting. But um, any anybody want to interpret that or comment on that? Um, I think that um, so. I guess one thing is to unmute and um, and speak up if you if you want to. But um, let me uh, let me go ahead and uh, make some comments. Excuse me. So, that would be the way because again, the shared screen makes it yeah. impossible for me as moderator to see everyone. So, right. you know, chat or share or, or, or unmute and speak, please. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll keep us speaking and then, um, uh, but please feel free to contribute if you, if you wish. Um, so, uh, a new element that comes in here in, in Dogen's, um, poem. Now, e even though the previous one we read by the monk named Talza, you know, he was a Soto monk. It's hard to know exactly, um, I mean, uh, if Dogen would have read that poem or not. So we know a lot of things that Dogen read and commented on and rewrote some of the poems, and we'll see some examples of that, but we don't know at all. So we can only imagine that um, he had access to this, these materials, but, the, you know, these collections of koans and poems and poet, poetic comments on koans are, are vast, and so we don't know how much of it Dogen was able to uh, get through, in, you know, in his uh, in his studies. Um, but I think the poem is quite similar. And uh, a new element is that he I see the flowers and hear birds. So there's there's an emphasis on uh, on nature. Now, in that first one by Baoshan, he did he say that he hears the sound of the tall pines uh, dripping with the rain. So there's something uh, uh, similar there. Um, but Dogen comments that I see the flowers and, the, and hear the birds without um, feeling much. Now, you know, the original Chinese is quite ambiguous <laughs> in just about all these uh, phrases, and it's, it's, it's not exactly clear um, when he says without feeling much. Does he, you know, you can't be 100% sure, but I think the... Ambiguity, ambiguity or ambivalence in the writing is part of what he's trying to get across. So does he not feel much because he is steady and indifferent and calm and composed? Or does he not feel much be, and, and kind of regrets that he it has kind of a nostalgia for, for that feeling because that does, um, that, that, that feeling can contribute to awakening. Two of the stories that Dogen loves to tell over and over again is uh, the Chinese monk Ling Yun, who uh, gained enlightenment after struggling for 30 years by seeing peach blossoms in bloom. And um, another Chinese monk, Sheng Yan, who had a similar story and was struggling for decades to gain enlightenment and um, uh, sweeping up a, a pebble uh, struck um, a bamboo and, and, and that uh, sound of the bamboo um, uh, awakened him. So he, he likes the idea that these momentary sensations uh, can be quite uh, inspiring and qu um, quite a, a way of, um, of stimulating the awakening experience. So when he says, I don't feel much, uh, it, it, uh, there's a kind of ambivalence there. But, and says, but isn't, it, isn't it that, that he, because he gave up the paper and pen that he doesn't feel much because he's lost that uh, desire for expression that, that has that has silenced a quality of feeling. That's, that's yes, how I see it too, is that the, he's so moved yet um, 
uh, having not allowing himself to express himself, he feels unrealized in that somehow in that regard. That's how I see it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. Definitely. I agree with both of those comments that there's that layer of, you know, I wish I could, you know, I, I want to be in touch with that feeling, mm. but I'm trying to, you know, the, uh, I don't want to say suppress or repress the feeling exactly, but in trying to overcome the world of attachments, um, do I lose a little bit of touch with the aesthetic impulse, the poetic uh, inspiration, uh, that uh, the communion with nature? You know, is there is there a kind of trade-off there? So that's an. I, I think you you know those comments are excellent comments because. You know, I think that's that's a level of ambivalence that he's bringing to it. That's a little bit richer, in a way, for me at least, um, than the other two poems. Um, even though he's probably was inspired by them or kind of building on their attitude. And then he says, "I am embarrassed by my meager efforts." So again, I think there's a kind of ambivalence here, in the sense that what's he embarrassed by? Is he embarrassed by? feeling the emotion anyway, even though he's tried to give it up? Or is he embarrassed by not feeling it deeply enough because he's tried to give it up? Or is he embarrassed by the fact that he knows he's not really a great poet? And he, even though the, the Zen masters kind of had to write poetry and they had to develop the skill as, as much as possible because it was an expectation and a kind of requirement, um, uh, you know, they, they would always probably compare themselves to the real poets. The real poets were, were longing for the, uh, for the, for the true uh, uh, spiritual experience of the, of the Buddhist masters, and the Buddhist masters were probably uh, longing to cultivate their, their poetic ability a little, bit, a little bit more. So I think all those levels of uh, uncertainty, doubt, are productively, for me, this is very productive uh, point for Dogen. Now, if we look at when he wrote this, um, a lot of the poems are, are undated, but if, you, if we put together, you know, kind of the uh, biographical context, this was probably written at a Heiji, probably in the, uh, in the 1240s, the late 1240s, when he was at a Heiji, and uh, the impression that, that uh, some historians of Dogen have is that he, like Chinese masters before him, would sometimes go off from the main temple area and go into uh, his own hut, his own meditation area, an area of seclusion. He would, uh, he would be reclu reclusive to some extent. Um, maybe, that, maybe the grounds where he went to, the location where he went to, was a little distance away from the main buildings at Aheji, or maybe it was nearby, but he would kind of seclude himself for periods of meditation. And a lot of the poems come out of that, uh, out of that time period, and also the waka or the, or the Japanese-style poems. Now, if we could scroll up to the uh, top, um, here I want to go to uh, two uh, other poems um, that... Uh, uh, and you may be aware of these uh, authors. Um, let's start with uh, Leo Khan. Leo, Leo Khan was a famous uh, Soto uh, a poet and monk from late 17, early 1800s, kind of the last great traditional 
uh, master before the Meiji era sets in and, and modernization sets in. Of course, there were a lot of great masters in the modern period, but Liokan was still in that kind of uh, pre-modern uh, traditional uh, era, and he was a great poet in himself, and probably greater as a, as a quote-unquote poet um, than, than Dogen would be considered as a, a poet if we looked at it from that angle. But, um, uh, you know, Lokyan was very uh, inspired by uh, Dogen, and he has a famous poem about, the, uh, about Dogen's Ehe Koloku, or the extensive record collection, um, that when he, um, uh, one time he, uh, he, according to that poem, uh, one night he was feeling, um, it was pouring rain out and he was feeling a little depressed and he kind of reached back into his bookshelf and he, lo and behold, he picks up an old copy of uh, Ehe Koloko and he dusts it off because he hasn't, uh, <clears throat> probably hasn't ever read it or hadn't read it for a while. And one of the things he comments on, he says that nobody's really read this seriously for 500 years. So he's writing a little over 500 years after Dogen's uh, death. And um, he, um, and he says, uh, he, you know, he reads it and he's so moved and he stays up all night. He, he lights a candle and he, he, he reads it and reads it and reads it. And he thinks back on when he had first studied Chobo Genzo. And, um, in, in that poem and in other, uh, some other remarks that he makes elsewhere, you know, Leo Khan says that he, uh, he's the first to admit that when you read Shobo Genzo at first, it's very difficult to understand Shobo Genzo. And, um, and he's not sure if he, if he understood it at that time, but he does remember uh, uh, that he um, uh, used that uh, Shobo Genzo as an impetus to, to uh, do some travels and to do some uh, deeper study and deeper practice of Zen. And that now that he's reading Ehe Koloku some years later, he's, he's very uh, inspired once again. And he, um, um, he, he kind of uh, brings uh, those two texts together. Uh, the poem ends in a very interesting way uh, because um, he, uh, he spends uh, all night reading it and then he weeps from joy at the experience, and the book is soaked. And then uh, the next uh, morning, a neighbor stops by, sees the uh, very damp book, and says, what's going on? Why is your book um, so wet? And so the uh, Khan says, well, he was kind of embarrassed. He didn't want to admit the real reason, so he told the neighbor that the, uh, the rain must have seeped in uh, during the, the driving storm that they had uh, during the night. Um, um, but uh, Yokan talking about his own poems, uh, could we get somebody to read this one? And again, if you want to accommodate the request, just unmute yourself and start reading. Thanks. I can go ahead and read. I can go ahead and read. Okay, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Why would anyone call would my, anyone poems, call my poems, poems? Poems. My poems are not. My poems, poems are not poems. Find me someone who understands my poems are not poems. So, we can begin to talk about my poems. Zhuangzi's goblet words. Where is there a man of no words, so that I may have a word with him? Yeah, so I, I'm assuming that uh, Liu Kang would have been influenced by the Taoist idea uh, that goes back to uh, Zhuangzi, a um, couple of centuries before common era of the, of the goblet words. Um, Whereas there's someone who uh, 
who speaks no word so that I can speak a word with, with that person. And, um, you know, wh why would anyone call my poems poems? So I think he's capturing uh, this um, ambivalence um, that he, he had the reputation, he knew he had the reputation for being, for being a poet, uh, but because his real identity was the, uh, was the Soto monk, um, he, he didn't want to limit uh, the view that the, what he was expressing was, uh, was literature in contrast to spirituality or to religion or to the, or to the Dharma. Um, now, uh, the next one uh, by uh, the famous um, Song uh, Dynasty Chinese uh, poet, Su Shi. Let me uh, introduce him. Uh, many of you would be familiar with him from Dogen's um, fascicle, uh, Keisei San Shoku, Sound of the uh, Valley Streams and, and Colors of the Mountains, um, where his, his poem is quoted by Dogen. A different poem is quoted by Dogen, where uh, Susha stays up all night, um, and he says that the um, the colors of the of the mountains are you know resemble the Buddha, and the um, uh, the sound of the of the river flowing is um, is like is the long tongue of the Buddha expressing the Dharma, and uh, in his comments, Dogen says, "Was Susha enlightened?" Um, by looking at nature, or was nature with the where the mountains enlightened by uh, by taking uh, into account or beholding uh, susha? I think uh, to me that's one of Dogen's most intriguing uh, commentaries, um, and um, and then it, it gets into a discussion of a number of things in that fascicle. But let's consider susha um, uh, outside of that poem because he's he was said to have written twenty seven. Hundred uh, poems, and um, he was also a famous uh, artist um, and painter. And he also inscribed many poems into um, into his artwork. He also wrote um, uh, travel uh, journals, and um, he 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 was a real Renaissance man. He was a government official for a while. He fell out of favor with the political situation, and he was sent into exile. But uh, for a while, he was the may mayor of uh, Hangzhou City. Um, he also was involved in, um, in um, um, agriculture, and he invented some agriculture machinery. He, um, he was known for uh, being an expert in cuisine, and the, uh, uh, the dishes that he favored or wrote recipes for are still uh, used in uh, China today. And... Um, you know, he was, he was quite a uh, important figure and he did, he was, he was not a Zen Buddhist, but he did spend time practicing uh, meditation at temples and he did interact with a lot of the Buddhist uh, poets. So this is a classic example where you have that uh, very uh, creative interaction between the poets who are interested in meditation and the meditators who are interested in writing poetry and, you know, what, what happens when they um, interact. And so, um, um, uh, you know, Dogen was the first in Japan, probably, to call attention to Susha's poetry, but uh, in subsequent years, you know, he became a prized figure in, in Japanese literary circles as well, and he influenced a lot of the other Zen poets of the era. So, uh, Susha's poem is quite uh, the simple, but deceptively simple. Some say music lurks in the lyre. Why then is it 
mute when closed in its case. Some say sounds come from the fingers of the player. Why then on your fingers do we hear no music? And um, um, so, so, you know, there's a kind of ambivalence here uh, uh, for Lyokhan because um, he doesn't want his poems to be looked at just as poems. And Susha is kind of focusing on, well, what is the inspiration? Is it the, is it the pen and paper? Is it the scroll? Is it the brush? Is it the mind? Um, uh, is it the fingers? I mean, the implication is that it's a state of mind and you can't like uh, physicalize it in either the instrument or the uh, actual act of playing if you, um, um, unless you have that uh, deeper uh, feeling. Now, I'd like to uh, explore uh, Susha a little bit more. So I'm gonna scroll down, way down to pa page six, I think it is. I think one more page, maybe it's seven. Yeah, that's it. So, um, and um, I see that uh, my, uh, one of my university uh, friends and colleagues is with us today who helped, uh, uh, who's in the field of Chinese economy, but she was nice enough to spend some time helping me um, uh, work on this uh, uh, translation. Um, so I want to thank uh, Julie uh, for that. And um, this is, um, this is a poem uh, Susha wrote that I think, you know, had a big influence on, again, not, I don't know this specific poem had, a, had the direct influence on Dogen, but it had a big influence on the, on the Zen uh, writing and the thinking and the atmosphere that Dogen would have uh, uh, been in China and, and brought back to Japan. Um, so getting up in the middle of the night aboard a boat. Now, uh, Susha was known for um, writings about his boat rides because after he fell out of favor in the government, he was only about um, 40 some years old, his mid forties, I think. And he spent uh, most of the rest of his life till he died in his sixties. Uh, um, in a kind of exile. Sometimes uh, it was a real punishing situation and he was even imprisoned for a few years. Um, and sometimes he was just kind of forced to travel around, kind of impoverished. He had a lot of prestige. His father was a famous poet. His brother was a famous poet. He came from Western uh, Sichuan province, but became very successful um, in the uh, Eastern uh, area along the coastline where the, where the main cities were and the main uh, literature was being written. And um, everybody honored his poetry, but um, there was a very difficult political situations that caused him some problems. Um, and so he, um, uh, you know, in China in those days, uh, the exile would generally be to the South, to the so-called malarial South. And uh, Sushi, uh, you know, got swept up in that. And he was forced to go South from the capital and he would often go on waterways and take these boat trips. And he doesn't, you know, he's usually in the poems, he's not necessarily complaining about his situation, but if, if, if you look at the biography a little bit, you can see that that atmosphere is there. So this one was written in the year 1079, and that was just at, at the time that his 
uh, period of uh, outcastness from the from the elite society was was starting to begin and he was sent on this one trip and um, so um, uh, I'll read the first two and, and I'll ask for somebody to read the the third verse as a light breeze rustles the reeds and cattails I open the hatch to watch the rain only to seek the lake to see that the lake is flooded by moonlight boatmen and waterfowl alike have tumbled into sleep a large fish startled scurries away like a fox fleeing this late at night people and things do not budge alone i amuse myself with my own shadow as the tide draws quietly on the shore i feel sorry for cold earthworms the moon setting amid the willows looks like a spider caught in a cobweb um, so, could I ask for somebody to do the uh, last verse? Suddenly I am filled with a sense of disquiet and trepidation. The vivid scene passing right before my eyes must vanish in the blink of an eye. Cocks crow, bells resound, and birds chirp as they flutter away. The roar is echoed by a drum being struck at the boat's prow. Okay, thank you. And, um, you know, if we look, uh, uh, if we can scroll down a little bit at the, we look at the rest of the page, um, you can see there's a brief summary of some comments in English and Chinese on the meaning of the poem and some examples like, um, you know, the scroll is an example of, of, uh, of Susha's uh, uh, painting and, and, uh, you know, in um, inscribing uh, 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 poetry on the scroll and he was known for uh, being one of the first artists to create the kind of um, impressionistic or non-representational style that became very characteristic of Zen painting in China and Japan in subsequent uh, generations um, that you know conveys the state of mind of the uh, of the artist more so than the uh, than trying to depict um, the actual thing or the actual uh, objects um, that are being painted. And, and Susha, you know, in addition to his, his other accomplishments, is known for helping to initiate that process. And then, you know, just to the left of that, there's, there's a painting kind of imagining Susha in one of his boat rides. And um, uh, Susha is also known as Su Dongpo, and Dongpo was um, a nickname because during his exile, one time he, he um, was forced to leave, live in a very modest uh, dwelling in a, on the eastern slope of a uh, of a mountain and um he he uh, took that as an as a nickname dong po and um anyway let's go back to the poem uh you can see that the, the uh, that summary refers to uh quietness and stillness and and chilliness so um any thoughts on the on the significance of the poem Well, I'm, uh, what stands out to me is uh, that he's amused by the own side of his shadow. And just in today's world, we're so preoccupied with all these different forms of entertainment. And that he's, he's like skillful enough to just find entertainment and happiness just with something as simple as his own shadow stands out to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, th uh, that's, a very, uh, that's a very good point. So he, he couldn't uh, turn to his iPhone. Uh, in that setting, but 
Yes, and I think um, the um, um, so let well let, <clears throat> let's come back to that in a second. I think that's a very good point. Um, uh, if going back to the first verse, anything on that on the first verse? Why does he wake up? And come out. So I think the um, the point seems to be that uh, he, he's he's asleep. He's inside a cabin. Right. He hears the sound of the rustling, and he thinks it must be raining. So he wa- he thinks he'll get up and watch the rain, and it's not raining at all. But there is a flood of light. So um, here's something. It's a, it's a kind of a very simple point in a way, but it shows the uh, sense of um, Deception, uh, delusion, um, uncertainty. Uh-huh. We don't know what the sensations are really telling us. You know, we could be completely wrong. We could be convinced for that moment that it must be raining, and then it turns out we're completely wrong. But we have to adjust our mind flexibly. We have to kind of do the pivot and, and, and deal with that. And his amusing himself with the shadow then is a perfect example of his ability to adjust to that situation because everybody else is asleep. But um, his presence um, also has an impact on the situation. And, for example, the fish uh, gets startled and flees away. So even though he, he doesn't, he's not trying to disturb anybody, and even though he may be a little bit, um, um, you know, wish for company, he may be feeling a little bit lonely, he finds a way to amuse himself. But the human presence cannot help but affect that natural surrounding um, because the, um, you know, the fish responds. Um, but he's trying to let the, I think he's trying to let the stillness uh, seep into himself. And so, yeah, that amusing myself. So what is a kind of turning point where he's turning inward? And um, how about the uh, feeling sorry for the cold earthworms? Or the, um, or the, or the spider web. Or, um, any thoughts on those images? Well, he becomes so so uh, open that uh, that he becomes, you know, as we say, uh, part of everything else, and suddenly has empathy for uh, the earthworms. Uh, so his sense of self has now is 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 wider. Right. Good. Um, so also the the, the, yeah. the moon um, conflating the moon with the spider caught in its own spider web is an extraordinary image. Um, uh, spiders don't get caught in their own spider webs, and that seems to be the initiation of the sudden disquiet. This idea that getting caught up in the um, imagery can somehow bring him away from feeling, feeling at one with his surroundings and at one with the, the natural world. Yeah, yeah, good. So it kind of moves very quickly there. So he, he's content, he amuses himself and he has that contentment, uh, but then he's aware that other beings, even the earthworms that you would, you know, t- t- most people would ignore or uh, be oblivious to, you know, he, it, it heightens his attention to focus on that, and he does feel the solidarity with uh, uh, all sentient beings having Buddha nature on a certain level, 
Um, but what, what does it mean other than feeling sorry for them? He, he, there, you know, it must be a little bit frustrating. There's nothing you can really contribute to it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, he, he kind of gets lost here in a distraction um, that um, w- looking at the moon setting and he's kind of, uh, so, so he's, he's, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of the serenity, but maybe that's, that's uh, an, a, a beginning to be a, a aware that whatever he's looking at has that, uh, can't help but have a diluted, uh, diluted element. And um, yeah. May I offer a comment? Yeah. I feel like um, based on your biography of him, that these mournful reflections are uh, something about his own status at that time, where he is in the scheme of his society, and maybe one could say tinged with a lot of regret about whatever has brought him to such a pass, because immediately after these um, observations we see suddenly I am filled with a sense of disquiet and trepidation. I mean, he's reflecting back on his own sense of loss, his wanderings in these humble circumstances. And the spider caught in a spiral where one could say, uh, having had an exalted position, he is now brought into a web of not of his own making. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of ingenious interpretation, I think. Um, because, um, I think you're right that, that that's exactly what, uh, he and others would, would do is they couldn't directly complain about their fate and, uh, and risk, um, that that would further aggravate the authorities that had, that, you know, had turned against them. Um, and so, um, and so they find these very intricate ways of conveying, uh, that feeling so that the, you know, getting caught in the cobweb could mean. Uh, referring to you know the socio-political um, the complications that 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 you can't avoid, and that even though and now even though he's he he feels this momentary uh, serenity in the boat, um, whether it's raining or the, you know whether the flood is caused by rain or moonlight, um, uh, he he's he's able to use that as an opportunity to express himself in that regard, but. Um, um, so I think that's, you know, that level is side by side with the level where, you know, maybe if you don't know about the biography, you would just, uh, see, take, take it at face value that this is kind of an epic scene, um, of, uh, attempting to commune with nature, being successful to some extent, and then not quite being able to complete that. Now, the impression we get from Keisai Sanshoku, uh, if you won't, if we mainly know about uh, this poet from from that passage, um, uh, it doesn't have all that complication and ambiguity in it. Um, it's kind of a, a very triumphal proclamation of uh, kind of understanding uh, the unity of uh, humans and nature. Okay, so in that in the in the final verse, we can see that it's um, that the uh, the sense of um, disquiet and trepidation comes up quite suddenly. And um, I think this uh, uh, second line is probably the main uh, line for the whole verse, the vivid scene. And vivid, I, I think, um, could be translated in different ways. Beautiful scene, pure scene, 
not sure the full implication actually, but maybe it means that, you know, just observing the scene. Clearly that, perceived. Perceived, yeah, that perception. You're taking that in. Now it's vivid to him because he's attentive enough to think about the earthworms and the cobwebs. So he's not just looking out generally, but the scene itself isn't vivid. It's the perception that's vivid. Um, and um, the, um, right before the eye, so the fourth character in that line is the um, Gen of Shobogenzo, the eye, the, you know, which, is, which uh, can imply the, uh, the Dharma eye. Um, but um, the scene is passing before him, but it, it passes, you know, in the blink of an eye, it vanishes instantly. Uh, again, there's other ways to, to uh, translate that metaphor. Um, so I guess the question would be, what exactly is causing uh, disquiet and trepidation? Well, perhaps partly the sense of loss uh, that all of this will vanish in the blink of an eye. And in the verse before, he has really been experiencing so much darkness of shadows and cobwebs and lowly earthworms. There's a sort of an existential angst here that I feel. Yeah. So is that darkness, um, yeah, I, 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 that's an interesting point. So in a way though, don't you want to awaken from the darkness? Wouldn't you think that he might want to awaken from that darkness? Um, uh, so that in any case, the dawn is coming. So there is an, uh, kind of an awakening. He's already um, awake, literally. Um, and uh, if he had an awakening experience in the Buddhist sense of beholding nature, observing it, having that, you know, detailed perception, seeing it, you know, for what it is. Um, actually, there was a Japanese poet, now that I think about it, who had a famous line that says, um, you know, I can talk about the, uh, the beauty of the, of the temple buildings, and I can talk about the beauty of the mountain. Uh, can you talk about the beauty of the spider web? Um, and um, uh, that, that attention to, that fine attention to detail in the poetry and in some of the examples of that painting of that era, I think is one of the uh, uh, one of the main things. But it's from the state of mind. It's not from actually trying to uh, portray it in a representational way. So um, uh, next thing that happens is that the sounds come about. Um, uh, natural sounds, humanly created sounds, and uh, the drum and the bell. Of course, the drum and the bell are associated with temple sounds because uh, those would be two main instruments um, at the uh, at the front gate of the temples traditionally that would be used um, uh, for for waking people up and for telling them other times of the day for eating and and meditation and chores um, and um, and that's happening on the boat as well. So is he kind of uh, sacralizing those boat sounds? They're kind of ordinary sounds for for the uh, for the boat to make, but but maybe he's bringing that into a kind of sacred quality. Okay, so um, let's um, uh, let's Sorry. look at the yes. Can I go ahead. Comment very briefly. Yeah, um, I feel like uh, in a way, this entire poem is a, is a process. 
um, in which somebody might go through. Like in the beginning, he's he's getting that uh, that initial uh, interest in the outside through the, uh, the light breeze, um, and then he opens the hatch, and that that's like the beginning process of of, of getting to through to enlightenment. And then he goes through the the process of feeling uh, that sorrow uh, for the earth ones, and finally he he kind of uh, awakens in a way um and is able to see things kind of holistically like in the in the last two uh here he doesn't use uh you know he doesn't he's not talking about himself anymore he's talking mm. more about his surroundings um so yeah that's that's kind of a way that i was uh, interpreted it yeah uh that's a very uh good point so um he he does personalize in the first two verses and in the uh and in the beginning of the third verse, but then it's just like a description, uh, which is a pretty typical uh, Zen uh, technique. And we'll see another example of that coming up where um, the, uh, 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 the, the poetic observation concludes with a portrayal or a depiction of what's happening out there without necessarily referring. So even though uh, so if we talk about, you know, subjectivity and objectivity in, in Kyoto school of, of, uh, philo of Japanese philosophy, where they're trying to interpret traditional Zen and, and kind of uh, modern philosophical terminology, they often talk about pure subjectivity uh, or absolute subjectivity, which means that you've embraced the objective world, you embrace the external reality, you embrace things as they are, things as they are, uh, so and you made it so internalized by cultivating the perception and the perception that you cultivate is going to have some uh, delusions. And, you know, Dogen talks about making mistake after mistake until you make the right mistake. So, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, some of the delusions uh, for a human being are never going to be completely um, eliminated, but they can be incorporated into this absolute subjectivity. And the, the, the more absolute the subjectivity is, the more, the description of objective reality is going to be emphasized rather than any reference to uh, the subject. So I think, you know, um, uh, this last comment, and if we looked at it in terms of the, uh, you know, the way the Kyoto school philosophers look at, would look at a passage like this, I think that's, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, um, thank you for those comments. So let's go to the next one. And we'll come back to more Dogen, but uh, the next one on the next page, and by the way, I think um, uh, uh, schedule-wise, we're going to go to about three, and then Bokushu uh, is going to organize uh, some breakout sessions uh, for like 10 minutes or so, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll take a half-hour uh, break, um, and... Um, and then we'll come back, at, you know, at 3.40 or 3.45 uh, for the final uh, sessions. Um, so just to, as you're thinking ahead. Okay, so this is another uh, Song Dynasty uh, Chinese poem that um, my colleague uh, was graciously uh, uh, helped me with um, by a poet named uh, Hua, Hua Shen. Uh, not, as no, not nearly as well known um, as Susha is, and um, hasn't been translated uh, very much, but uh, uh, it, you know was a very important uh, player in this era. So if you figure Dogen is going to China in 1223, um, 
you know, Huai Shen is writing this poem a hundred or uh, so years uh, before him. Now, he was from the uh, Yunmen school, or Unmon in, in Japanese uh, pronunciation, which um, was one of the five schools that they talk about in uh, Zen from this period. Um, and um, as you know, in, in Japan, it became mainly two schools, Rinzai and Soto. And the other schools that kind of died out or never really uh, transitioned um, to Zen. You know, when we talk about the five schools of Zen in the, in, in the Song Dynasty China, um, there was, in a way, um, it is true that Rinzai, the Rinzai school and the Soto school had become the most important uh, in China as well. Um, and there weren't really five that were active throughout the whole Song Dynasty. It was mainly those two. But on the other hand, um, there were a lot of sub-factions. So when we talk about five, uh, you know, there, you, you might as well talk about uh, 10, 15, 25 or more sub-factions because each, each master had their own lineage and they had their own uh, group and their own interpretation. And, and so it gets very um, interesting, but very uh, complicated to track some of that history. Um, but we do know that of the other schools, the Yunmen school was definitely um, uh, the most popular uh, of the three actually for most of the uh, 11th century, and that the initial, some of the initial uh, writings, especially uh, koans and koan interpretations, were primarily by Yunmen school. And then, for various reasons, that kind of uh, died out. And by the time Dogen got there, um, he would have only been aware, probably, of the two schools of Rinzai and Soto. Um, uh, as you know, Dogen, in some of his writings, one of the contradictions with Dogen is that in some of his writings, he denies having these sub-schools, and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really use the word Soto, um, you know, Soto. I, he says, I follow Rujing, I follow the, this lineage, but um, he said we shouldn't even use the word Zen necessarily, it's just true Buddhism. So all those things are very interesting and part of the ambivalences and, the you know, in kind of creative inconsistencies um, that make us think, you know, for me, make us think more deeply about uh, what Dogen is getting at. Well, anyway, this poet wrote a famous poem called uh, Taking a Step uh, Back. And there's actually 12 uh, stanzas. And I think here I have uh, pick six or seven. I, I tried to um, uh, streamline it a little bit. So how many are there? <laughs> um, anyway, it stops yeah, on this one page. Anyway, there's seven or eight maybe. Okay. So uh, we don't have to do all of them, but you can see that uh, if you look at the first line, nothing is better than somebody who takes a step back. Um, and so out of the original 12 verses, most of them start with that line. Here you can also see that they change it a little bit. Nothing is better than taking a step back to rest in the third one here and the fourth one. And if we scroll down a little bit, uh, nothing is is better than to take a step back to reside. Um, again, back to take a step back, and the last two are taking a step back to uh, sleep. Um, so um, the common thing there is, uh, you know, nothing is better. If we, if we look at the uh, Chinese, it literally says 10,000 things. Uh, 10,000 things is 
you know, kind of a metaphor for everything. So you don't necessarily take the take it literally. Um, but it says ten thousand things are not like. Literally, it says ten thousand things are not like. Um, so, um, but but I, I I think I take it that this um, this is kind of a um, the, the implication if we put it in in contemporary uh, translation is uh, it means like nothing is as good as taking the step back. Um, and and that's the implication through all these taking the step back whether it's to uh, whether it's left as a, alone that image or whether it's to rest or to sleep you take the step back. So um, my colleague and I were working on this uh, when the when the um, uh, quarantine first started back in the spring maybe back in May and um, you know we realized like hey this is this is exactly what's happening you know what this this is ex example of the uh, of our uh, Zen <laughs> poet predecessors uh, anticipating in some ways um, some of the things we go through uh, today like like that comment about the line of amusing myself in the shadows um, okay so uh, would somebody take that first verse Nothing is better. You're going? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Nothing is better than someone who takes a step back. Be sure to cultivate yourself thoroughly from head to toe, because when you blew out the flame burning in your heart, you no doubt missed seeing the anger that was in your belly. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, any thoughts on this one? Well, I, I, I can understand what, what he's saying, uh, but it, from a contemporary psychological perspective, uh, it's kind of uh, amusing in the sense of, uh, you know, deadening the mind, but missing the passions that are still there. <laughs> I mean, that's not what's intended, in the, I think, from historically. You know, we think about uh, when we take a step back, we're able to silence the, the anger that's in your belly. But I mean, of course, from a contemporary psychological perspective, we would say, you know, that's, uh, that's shutting down something that's still present. Um, okay, yeah. So, um, so are you saying it's, it's different than the contemporary perspective or? I do, I do think it's different. I think it's kind of, because when you blew out the flame burning in your heart, you no doubt missed seeing the anger that was in your belly. I, th I think it implies that, you, that there's no more anger there, that you're not a acting on the anger. And I was just saying that. Okay. We would well, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm um, wondering, um, because I tend to see it as, as um, and maybe it's the translation uh, needs needs some tweaking, but I, I tend to see it as consistent with the contemporary view. I, I think what you're saying, if I understand what you're saying, which is that, in, in other words, you overlooked, you thought you had cleansed yourself, but you, you know, if you didn't really take the step back from head to toe, you overlooked that core element that's going to continue to infect or pollute the situation. Is that, is that fair? That's to say? exactly what I was trying to say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, I, um, I think that's actually quite, that can be quite a common experience among people practicing yeah. in general. 
is to feel like they've accomplished something or got somewhere and then something comes back to bite them and it's 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 more more lizard brainy more fundamental more uh, embedded in you than you realize more embedded exactly yeah not yeah, not dropping dropped <laughs> basically so no, if we I talk don't. about dropping like drop off body mind you mean yes yes and then and then you know rushing says dropping drop off dropping off like you have to continue to drop it off you haven't totally dropped it off i mean i think of situations where you know uh, let's say you think to yourself okay i overreacted that time i'm not going to overreact the next time i i got it straight i know what i'm going to do but then in the heat of that moment there you are uh you know if, if something's very frustrating or there's a sense of futility you know and you realize okay yes i had i still have that element there the delusion um, of non-delusion. <laughs> the delusion of non-delusion. That's a good right. One. But the second line does does uh, say what you were saying. It it tells us to be sure to cultivate thoroughly from head to toe, which would include the belly, the yeah. anger. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 an admonition. It's like be careful there. I'm I'm struck. I, I wanted to mention one thing. Good morning, Stephen. Uh, it's Marcia. Um, oh, hey, how are I, it you? Seems, it seems to me um, what I get uh, caught on is the stepping back and the notion that you can, that, that gives you a perspective on yourself um, and what stepping back means in practice uh, as opposed to the view, so to speak. So I wonder if stepping back is, is really a legitimate way to get a perspective. That's a question. Well, you know, I mean, the, yeah, um, if I understand your question, uh, that's a good point. I mean, I think of, um, you know, in Fukunzo Zengi and other writings, uh, you know, the, uh, Dogen says, you know, take the step back and let the light shine, right? Um, I, right. I, I, yeah. So, and, and, I, and Dogen also uses, um, and I think especially in Ehe Kolok, some Ehe Koloku passages and, and others in writings of that period would use the idea you would, Sometimes you advance, sometimes you step back. Sometimes you take a horizontal approach, sometimes a vertical approach. Sometimes you let go, sometimes you hold on. When you're, th those are all referring to teaching techniques, uh, depending on the, uh, on the uh, level of understanding of the disciple or the interaction that you're having. And so um, stepping back by itself would seem to be one-sided because sometimes you have to advance. And stepping back could be too passive or, not, you know, not not uh, dealing with the situation um, uh, in and of itself. But I think, you know, the, uh, the way I take it is this author is trying to say, okay, let's explore that option in 12 uh, instances out of which I have seven or eight here. Um, so let's explore what happens when you only take a step back. Now he says, and I think I have it here, um, let, let's, if we could scroll down a little bit because um, he does talk about, um, yeah, there's a kind of price to pay. So let's look at the one where it says, um, nothing is, is better than stepping back to reside at the top of the screen as it now appears. Uh, um, nothing is better than st uh, stepping back to reside in a thatched hut hidden amid the uh, green mountains. Others may laugh at this simple life, but I thoroughly enjoy my solitude. 
So I take that one to mean that, um, you know, there's a, there is a bit of price to pay because others are going to laugh at me. You know, if I, if I look like I'm ste stepping back too much, uh, people can say um, that, you know, you're disengaged, you're, you're um, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to, to get criticized for, for this solitude. But, but an example would be, um, you know, that, that there's, um, um, but, you know, by having the solitude, you, you pay that price. And you, you know, and 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 so you're kind of free from the the karmic uh, residue of that of absorbing that criticism. And I think that that theme comes up in the in the next uh, verse as well. So would anybody take that one? Sure, I'll read it. Uh, Nothing is better than a monk who takes a step back, with long hair and face unshaven. I spit out words like a country bumpkin. Who could help but listen to this blunt talk? Um, okay, any thoughts on that one? I identify with it. <laughs> <laughs> How many identify with it in this group? <laughs> no? <laughs> Unmute. <I do. laughs> well, who identifies? Well, I, I'm struck from the previous uh, the previous poem or quatrain um, about the thatched hut, uh, it immediately for me made me think of my several um, forays into um, leaving Facebook behind, <laughs> say, for example. Um, and kind of uh, that feels like a version of, um, of fleeing into the mountains for a simpler life. And I really enjoyed that. I actually, my life felt richer and fuller for having set aside, um, set aside the kind of um, uh, distractions and entanglements of social media. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, um, I've found myself thinking, and I find myself thinking it these days too in a world of, of um, you know, remote teaching as a professor as well, like kind of, and, and remote learning and remote everything. Mm -hmm. that that the circle of my my life is actually is feels very small i feel like i'm living in a thatched hut in some mm -hmm. way right now right yeah and so i wonder about um uh usefulness about being useful in the world um in my from my thatched hut and yet mm -hmm. what this second poem seems to be saying is that it's the people it's the monk in the thatched hut who actually has something to say. Right, right. Um, so the fool on the hill kind of idea. How to bridge the you know the monk in but the monk in the thatched hut doesn't have Zoom, so how does he uh, how does he or she um, <laughs> speak? <laughs> uh, I also feel that there's an authenticity. Yeah, well, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I, no, I, just, I was just going to say that, that what he's saying, I think, is, um, is also that there's an authenticity in stepping back. Um, it's like giving up an idea of like, what it is to be a monk and just letting the hair grow and letting your face go unshaven. Cause, and just, just whatever, whatever comes out, comes out. And that's, that's the truth. And so what? And, and when the truth is unvarnished, it can't, can't but be something that's compelling to, to, to hear. Right, right. So people have to pay attention. If, 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 if the fool on the hill is speaking uh, wisdom, 
And, you know, I think Lyokan, even though it's a rather uh, later date, uh, but at that point in Japanese society was still uh, living um, that. Uh, there was, um, you know, a famous uh, modern haiku uh, poet, uh, Santoka, um, who, um, who um, um, uh, some of his works have been translated and, uh, um, you know, kind of lived that way in the... Uh, uh, into the 20th century. Um, yeah, so how do they get across if they don't have a, um, a platform like Zoom to communicate with? But, you know, I think, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, we need uh, some uh, social history there, but probably uh, um, people, um, uh, their um, companions or their or their non-companions, but the people in the in neighboring areas would hear about them. They gain a certain reputation. They come to them for some insight. They get a uh, following. I mean, one thing is that if 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 these people are wise and they do wish to withdraw, um, they have to uh, decide: do they want to teach or not teach? You know. I mean, I think one thing uh, what Dogen tried to do in a way was have his cake and eat it too by leaving Kyoto for the mountains. And so he had that sense of reclusion in nature and away from the secular um, socio-political pressures um, and the rivalries with other Buddhist schools and all that. But, um, but he, he, you know, he chose to keep the responsibility of developing the community and establishing um, his Sangha at a time when uh, these rules were still new. I mean, there had been Buddhist rules of discipline, but primarily for uh, secluded monks, but, but primarily for monks who uh, followed certain rituals and doctrines. And he was trying to, you know, he was newly establishing uh, the Zen um, uh, monastic uh, discipline uh, that that had not been introduced into uh, Japan before. Um, I think the uh, the next one is interesting. Not nothing is better than taking a step back to sleep. Um, remaining at ease despite seeming inattentive or sluggish. Because sap is quite useful, we tap it from the tree, light a few drops of resin, and it burns through the night. So I had to look into this one a little bit, and I, didn't, I hadn't quite realized that um, sap had been used historically in, in Asia and other parts of the world as a, as a fuel. And, um, and, uh, you know, um, apparently um, it didn't take much, many drops to uh, be effective and, and the heat would last uh, through the night, even with just a few drops. So the implication uh, there is that um, the, uh, that withdrawn uh, country bumpkin monk who, who's plain speaking the truth that people are probably paying attention to to some extent and maybe overly eagerly paying attention to without really trying to understand it, you know, is like can compare himself, you know, that, a, you know, a little bit goes a long way if it's the right, you know, if it's on the right path, if it's, if it's an authentic, uh, if it reflects an authentic realization. Yes. Yeah, it seems I had a quick question. I'm, so the, the the way these are listed, um, it's chronologic, so to speak. Well, this yeah. Again, there was twelve, and I picked what is it, seven or eight, and that that was the order. But I didn't. I just left a couple out to squeeze. Okay. Them. 
So um, I think what's interesting about these last two. Yes, sequential, sequential. Um, okay, uh, about the country bumpkin and then the resin is, you know, what comes up for me is the question of aversion as opposed to, um, uh, again, seeking out. And, um, and is, is there, um, in stepping back and in considering um, the, the idea of being unshaven and yet uh, one drop, one, one drop of knowledge, one drop of dharma burns through the night. I mean, it seems to me like there's a, um, a recollecting that um, where, he's, where he is in his stepping back uh, allows him to see more clearly and burn more brightly, even on one drop. Right. I'm wondering what you... If, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, even on the one drop, even, you know, the... the, um, um, the um, if, if it, you know, if, if, the, if the teaching is authentic, if the, if the practice is, is genuine... Yeah, and I think just going back to that question about how would we do it without, with or without Facebook or social media, yeah. I mean, I, I, my sense about um, these personas was that you heard about them and you made the effort to seek them out. Yeah. And, yeah, and, so I mean, that, and we do that now, and we can yeah. do that without social media. Yeah, with or without it. I mean, right. so, somehow that, that has been... A tendency to seek out the wise people because somehow the reputation grows because they're writing poetry or because they're uh, the activity is such that the that people are learning from them or inspired by them. Um, Thank you. So, um, on the, yeah. Can I say something? Yes, please. Um, uh, this verse gives me the sense that um, of creativity uh, being in the unconscious that. Um, without making an effort, you know, you seem inattentive or sluggish, but somehow, you know, this sap arises yeah. and emerges into the world and gives something to the world. And I kind of love that as a description of creativity, just right, within, right. but emerging. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Dogen talks about um, constant effort, uh, constant exertion, yoji, sustain maintaining uh, the activity, uh, the G meaning literally walking, but implying practice in Buddhism. So it implies meditation. And, you know, meditation is a kind of uh, active effort, but it seems to somebody else like you're doing nothing. You know, it, it also goes back to the Taoist, uh, you know, Wu Wei or non-action that um, what, what looks inactive or inattentive is actually the most attentive. And, you know, that, I think that would apply to Susha. You know, that's what Susha was trying to get at, although he's kind of, as not a monk, um, he's kind of admitting that he's, he's struggling with it at, at that time, and, and then we have all the biographical issues surrounding him as well. Sorry, if, if I can make yeah, a brief please. comment. Um, you know, uh, now that you mentioned um, the comment with uh, Susha and uh, the importance of words, um, and uh, the the recipient of the of the bunk, country bumpkin's blunt talk, you know, he might not be able to understand everything completely. He might not be able to grasp everything completely. But if he gets a little bit of that, just a little bit of that sap, then that would be enough uh, just for him to kind of access that uh, uh, that teaching. So right. That's that's kind of the way that I uh, interpreted it. Yes. Good. Very good. Yeah. The little bit 
um, goes a long way. And um, okay, so in the last uh, verse, um, one thing I wanted to point out um, in the um, third line, well, let me just read it. Nothing is better than taking um, a step back to sleep. In a bed made of pine with a net of paper that feels as warm as a wool blanket, explaining dreamlike existence without resorting to flowery or coarse words. After all, I am just a rustic monk lacking knowledge of Zen. Um, so one thing I wanted to point out in the, um, in the third line or the, to the left side of the second, you know, so, you know, if you read it across from, uh, left to right, line one, line two. So on, the, on our second line is kind of line three of the, of the translation. And you, um, if you're familiar with the characters uh, or in the English phrasing, it says in a dream, mu chu, like in the mu chu setsumu fascicle. Um, and then the next, uh, and that's in Japanese pronunciation. And then the next um, three uh, characters are setsuwa mu. So, you know, Dogen has mu chu setsu mu, explaining a dream within a dream or uh, however, you know, there's different translations of that. But you're in the dream and you're explaining the dream. And it, he also talks about you're in the world of entanglements and you're disentangling yourself from the entanglement in the uh, kato um, fascicle. And, um, and so this is a theme that Dogen has in several fascicles, making the right mistake of like you're in the world of delusion and you're extricating yourself from the world of delusion but you have to use the world of delusion in order to extricate from the delusion by seeing the delusion as delusion but not getting into the delusion of non-delusion to borrow the phrase that was mentioned a few minutes ago um and um and um so um so anyway it, it occurs to me uh you know that that but you know when we look at this um we can see how many of these ideas were kind of moving around in the Zen circles and being accessed and appropriated and interpreted and applied in different ways by, by uh, the different uh, Zen masters and, and poets in China and in, in Japan. Could, could uh, I ask you to yeah. comment, uh, Dr. Hine, on this? Yes. What seems to be a poetic convention in the selections that we've read, these authors uh, who have very distinguished histories, positions, even at the time they were recognized uh, to be exceptional. Having this, um, I don't want to say pose, but they take the position that they are, you know, country bumpkin, their efforts are worthless, uh, lacking knowledge. It's consistently them trying to minimize their accomplishments themselves. Um, how much of that was just a cultural expectation uh, independent of Zen at all? And is there any connection between that and the ambivalence about literature, which was at the time very much an upper class thing? Uh, so when you're coming from an upper class background, you're going to now be in an egalitarian framework of Zen, uh, and maybe you have a certain amount of uh, shame or ambivalence about your upper class origins. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question, and I guess um, I guess one uh, um, implication uh, maybe you're suggesting is the um, is it a pose? Are you saying it's a kind of a literary conceit to 
pose as kind of humble and um, yeah, okay. So, um, well, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, I, I really, have, that's a deep question I have to think about uh, kind of historically and socially in, in that era. But yes, we do, you know, if we, if we go back to Dogen saying, you know, my meager effort, I mean, that meager effort, that phrase when he says, uh, uh, back on page one, I regret my meager effort, I think that was, um, you know, that was kind of a typical phrase to, um, that, that, that uh, he didn't—he didn't invent that phrase. That that's what they—that's the kind of thing that they would say. Uh, you know, who am I? Who am I to uh, express it? I, you know, I'm just—I'm—I'm um, uh, uh, I'm no different. So, is that a conceit, um, uh, a literary conceit, to conceal? You know, an egotistical, con you know, being conceited kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean that 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 gets uh, that's a very uh, fascinating kind of question. So let me just try to I'm buying time here um, by repeating the question, but let me let me look at it from Dogen's point of view, um, and then we'll come back to some examples of Dogen. Um, and um, so Dogen, I think, um, you know, had that very interesting uh, background, uh, supposedly according to the traditional accounts. Uh, you know, that on his father's side, uh, the father was descended from an, uh, an emperor from the 900s, and his father was a great military uh, general. And, his, you know, and, and, and his father was from the uh, clan that was, uh, that was coming into power, uh, beating out the Fujiwaras. And his mother was from the Fujiwara side, um, who, um, you know, had lost their uh, prestige, but, but their aristocracy was still quite uh, important in the, you know, when Dogen was born and through the, through that whole, uh, 13th century and, and had a big impact on, on Dogen's career one way or the other. And in fact, uh, you know, one theory is that, um, would be that, um, um, you know, if you look at the traditional biographies, Dogen was supposedly offered by the Fujiwaras who, when his mother and father died and he became an orphan at the age seven, apparently the mother's, um, mother's father or or the mother's brother it's it's not clear uh which of the fujiwaras but took him in for a couple of years and trained him to have a uh, social you know he, he could have been one of the scholar elites uh he could have been one of those people rather than within a monk and they wanted to train him and he was supposed to have his confirmation ceremony at the age of 12 and then he snuck off and decided no i'm going to reject that and he joins uh, uh the uh, the tendai monkhood on mount Hiei. And then eventually um, uh, gives that up and, and uh, becomes a Zen monk. And the rest is history. But um, so, so um, you know, one theory would be is that, the, the, that one of the reasons he would have left Kyoto is that the Fujiwaras were never happy with that, the, the fact that he rejected them. And that um, he, uh, they, you know, they supported other Zen teachers over him in Kyoto. And then he got the support of a, of a samurai uh, Hatano, who um, happened to own land in the in the northern mountains, and he he went off to the northern mountains. So so just like Susha was struggling with a, a lot of these um, uh, socio political pressures, uh, Dogen in his own way. Uh, I don't I don't like to overplay that too much, but it, it, at least that's the way the traditional biographies created. So he he kind of comes down to earth from the aristocracy, but he he deliberately abandoned it. Uh, Abandoned. He he wasn't the only one who deliberately abandoned it, of course. Uh, but one thing that's a little bit different than Dogen is that a lot of the monks went into it um, 
at the high level, so they became elite monks because they were born into an elite family, or if they weren't born into an elite family, they were abandoned by their, their, their family, or their family could not support them, so they gave them to the temple, and then they kind of worked their way up from anonymity and, uh, you know, uh, uh, gained gain prominence that way. So Dogen had a little of both. I think that's what's powerful about the Dogen story is that he, he both um, has the kind of descending from the high, highest levels of society and yet um, by, by purposely giving them up on his own choice at a young age, then he works himself up from the bottom up without any identity or support from the mainstream. And, um, and so, yes, he's always going to be kind of playing off of that vulnerability or uh, making that uh, comparison, I think. Um, but uh, yes, it, it also does play into the, uh, the humility. I mean, I, I don't know how many um, of you are American uh, sports fans out there, but you know, there was a story that just happened this week where one of the great uh, football quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers, um, you know, made some comment and they said, oh, you know, you're having a good year this year. And he goes like, even my bad years are better than everybody else's good years. And people were saying like, oh, you shouldn't say something. You're so egotistical. And then other people said, well, why not? You know, if you, if you got it, flaunt it. You know, you're allowed to brag a little bit sometimes. And, um, you know, I think um, Dogen does have that bravado sometimes because he says like, I am the first in Japan to establish meditation. I am the first in Japan to establish Dharma Hall lectures. I am the first in Japan to give um, uh, prestige to the uh, chief uh, cook, to the Tenzo. I am the first in Japan to establish the uh, monastic rules of discipline. And um, he, um, uh, and you know, there, there is that idea, if we go back to uh, the Zen teachers supposed to startle their assembly with the brilliance of their words, and they're overturned the oceans and, and leap over Mount Sumeru, you know, Dogen, has that uh, proclamation, uh, those kinds of proclamations as well. So I think it's disingenuous. He's not trying to uh, build himself up uh, on an ego trip necessarily, but um, there, there's a combination of those factors of the total humility in some cases, and I'm no better than anybody else, and then um, saying, no, you know, here's where I'm a pioneer, here's where I do establish it. And I think actually those claims that Dogen make, if you look at them, and they're, they're mostly in, not in Shobogenzo so much as in the um, – Hey Koloku, uh, some Hey Koloku passages. I think they're very important because you know the fact of the matter is he was the first to do a lot of that stuff, and it got taken for granted very easily. And then the Rinzai school historically kind of went, you know, became more popular or more prestigious than uh, than the Soto school did for a while. Partly because they did keep the connections with the Fujiwaras and the aristocrats, and so there's a lot of that. in, yeah, I do interpret there's a lot of that in the background. Okay, as we're heading towards the uh, uh, breakout and then the break time, uh, let's move back, if we could, um, if you don't mind, um, yeah, uh, scrolling up to the first page again, or second page, I think. Top of the second page. Okay. Um, okay, this is from the author of the uh, Blue Cliff Record, and in the... Uh, uh, which has 100 cases, and in, the, in case 100, um, and in some versions, it's actually in case 99, they get, uh, there's some disagreement about whether it's 99 or 100. But anyway, towards the end, at the, at the end of the book, 
after commenting extensively on 100 koan cases. And I think, I do think the Blue Cliff Record, which is something that I've uh, been very fascinated by, especially in recent years, I do think the Blue Cliff Record, it's very complicated what Dogen's uh, relationship with the Blue Cliff Record was for, I won't go into all the details about that, but I do think the Blue Cliff Record, you know, again, I say this to my students sometimes, like if, if you're going to read Dogen, think about like, what's the one thing that you have to read first before you can really understand Dogen? And of course, there's a lot of things and you can pick nine things and they might be things in Western philosophy or in Christianity that, you know, Christianism or some, something very different uh, that, that, you know, makes you ready to really appreciate uh, reading Dogen. Um, but for me, it's the Blue Cliff Record because Dogen takes so much of his, um, so many of his ideas, so many of his basic terminologies like uh, Zen Ki, uh, Total Dynamism or Activity, uh, Genjo Koan, and um, uh, many other examples. I think he, of Kato, the entanglements, uh, he, he, he was really inspired, uh, not, not that he's imitating it, but he, 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 a lot of his vocabulary and syntax and the way he, he frames things is very much related to um, uh, Blue Cliff Record. And of course, there is the uh, very good translation going back to 1970s by the uh, Cleary brothers. Um, so at the end, he says, uh, filled with countless uh, bushels, a boat effortlessly pulls away, holding just one grain of rice in a jar and traps a snake. When offering comments on 100 uh, transformative old koan cases, just how many people end up with sand tossed in their eyes? Um, so let's look at that last line. What does he mean by sand tossed in their eyes? I, I think this really ties to what we were just talking about. He's, he's casting a sort of aspersion on his own verses and saying that they would actually uh, be an impediment to clear sight and clear insight into the cases. Right. Um, and would that be true for all language? Yeah. I mean, there, there's where we get the implication and that, um, you know, uh, as some of you know, Blue Clip Record's kind of complicated, and this guy Yuen moves commenting on Shuedo, who was a century before him, and he says, um, you, know, everything, you know, everything I say, everything I say and the other masters say is like tossing sand and sprinkling mud. Um, so this, you know, is the ultimate statement of humility. Um, but um, let's go down to the third one where it says ambivalent self-responsibility. So if we look at these next two, one is by uh, this guy Shuedo, who um, a, you know, was one of the two main contributors to Blue Cliff Record. They lived a century apart. Um, so Yuen Wu comments on Shuedo. In one act, he takes the tiger's head and the tiger's tail. His imposing majesty extends throughout the 400 realms. So in commenting on a koan, he refers to a master's majesty that contained the tiger, Yunmen. But I inquire of him, didn't you realize how impregnable the position was? In other words, um, whatever great thing you did, I can still challenge it. I can still say you're going to be a loser next time around, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. But then, you know, this is what I like the best about this. 
uh, the final part, the final line is, and if you see, you can see in the Chinese, there's seven, seven, seven characters, but the last one only has five characters. And the first two characters says, Shuedo says, I leave out the last part. So he doesn't finish this poem. Why would he not finish that poem? Um, if I may, um, in a way I see it that the position, uh, my interpretation is, I don't know if it's wrong or not, but um, the way that they see the use of words is that it depends on the, on the recipient and they have to be able to uh, kind of see it with, uh, I guess, their mind's eye. Um, any kind of word can be useful as long as they're able to, to interpret it correctly. And I think it goes back to the idea of nature as well. Um, you know, nature is there uh, to, to show us that everything is imbued with the Buddha nature, but unless we're able to actually see it, then, you know, it's not of much use to us. Right. So, I mean, one, one so there's a couple points uh, I think you made. One point is that it's in the mind's eye. And ultimately, and Dogen will say this as well, is that these great interpreters will say, look, I, I can only go so far. I mean, you, you have to express it for yourself. And don't expect me to rehash what others have said. Don't expect me to rehash what I myself have said previously. I want to always say it somehow new, in a new way and not get stuck on a fixed position. So going back to the original point, Zazen is steadfast. The speaking is flexible. But the flexibility comes from the steadfastness is, you know, without, you know, that's, that's the goal that Dogen, I think, is trying to reach is to integrate that flexibility of discourse. And, and these are, you know, this is not Dogen, but this is an example that he, that would have influenced him. Not um, clinging. Go ahead. The not clinging. Not clinging. Don't, yeah. don't, don't hold on. Go with it. Find it for yourself. Find it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, you know, I'm throwing sand in your eyes. So if you want to take the sand out of your eyes, you say it yourself and you become your own teacher. You're, you become your own uh, recluse. You become your own, um, uh, per, you, know, uh, uh, you know, my teaching is only to there to help you to develop your teaching, which is there to help the next person in the, you know, the network, in the Dharma network. Um, the... Um, or maybe network's too modern a word in the in the um, in the Indra's net of of the Dharma, um, and um, also you know the, the next one is from the uh, uh, Gateless Gate or the Momonkan, um, and uh, this is uh, so similar. Um, uh, on this case. Uh, the comment, the verse comment, lifting his leg, he kicks up the scented ocean, lowering his head. He looks down from the fourth Diana uh, heaven. So these are those uh, examples of boasting, of bravado, of, uh, you know, we're, we, you know, using these uh, physical imagery to say how, how great the master is. But then um, the last line is, let someone else complete that verse. Um, so I, I, you know, lately I've been, you know, looking at these two side by side. I just love the way they just trail off there. Um, the um, and in the uh, in the Chinese on this one, again, you see it's seven um, 
seven, 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 and the last one only has five because it just says, you know, someone else will follow up. And, you know, in fact, they did have, um, you know, what in Japan were called uh, verse uh, contests where um, the, uh, the great uh, poets, and some of them were monks, and some maybe weren't monks, but they, they were probably um, uh, all um, uh, meeting together at some point. And, you know, in the, in the, in the area after Dogen, 100 years after Dogen, the shoguns became very involved with Zen and supported and, you know, had what could be called salons in the, uh, in the Imperial Palace in Kyoto, where they brought in the uh, great poets and, and uh, artists and the, um, and the Zen masters and, you know, the, the, uh, the famous uh, uh, painting of, uh, jo, jo, by Joe Setsu's, um, with the, how do you catch a, how do you catch a, uh, a catfish with a, with a gourd, um, where there were 33 poems written about that one painting. It was an example of that atmosphere. Uh, we don't know if Dogen was part of that kind of atmosphere, but when he was in Kyoto, before he went to Eheji, and you figure when he comes back from China, he's in Kyoto for like 15 years. And, you know, we don't know. We can only speculate. How did he get along with the Fujiwara clan? How did he, you know, what happened here and there? But there are a couple of indications based on some letters that have been recovered and, and some other uh, documents that he may have been involved in that poetic world a little bit, and he may have communicated with those people, and he may have participated in some of those poetry contests where uh, they have, let's say, a dozen poets sitting around, and one writes the first half of the verse, and the other has to complete it, and then the next one has to start a new verse, and that's completed by the fourth person. Okay, so before we do the breakout, let's finish with one, let's go back to Dogan, back on page um, uh, one. Sounds like rap. St Stephen, at some point, can you speak to the word impregnable? Um, yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I was, when I read it, I was thinking, like, why did I use that word? <laughs> <laughs> so let me do that after the break, okay? Um, so we're about to take the break, and let me do double check that. Um, but um, um, you read my mind. Um, so... Um, Okay, so here's, you know, this could be my favorite uh, Dogen poem. Um, uh, Ambivalence, Mission, uh, the one, uh, under the one that we read about the uh, meager efforts. And, um, you know, some of these, uh, when you look at the textual history, it gets complicated because there were different versions of these. And this was one of the first poems of Dogen translated to English by Lucian Strick. A lot of people know, still know this this uh, translation, I forget the title of that book, but he had a translation of, of some Zen poetry, including this one by Dogen. And he was using a little bit different version from the original writing uh, for his uh, translation. So it reads somewhat differently. And he has this phrase, dreamwalkers. And um, he also uses this phrase, black rain on the roof of the temple. And I think what he really means is evening rain. I, so I disagree a little bit with the black rain, especially in the modern times, because that was a term for the uh, Hiroshima bomb. But, but, um, but anyway, um, uh, that is a poetic translation by Lucian Strick. But um, uh, the, um, 
you, if you just look this over for a minute, since we we're trying to go to the break time or the breakout time. So let's, um, let me ask, what is the, you know, message from the last sentence, last line of this poem? Well, when I read that line, it makes me think of Rikyu and the tea house and that uh, tremendous sense of peace. Uh, I mean, how, 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 how much better can it get? <laughs> right. That's the thought I have. Yeah. Good. Um, so, um, the reason I added the word deep grass is because Fukakusa, uh, where Dogen was living in a hut at that time, literally means deep grass. And it was outside of Kyoto, but it was mainly a place for the uh, aristocrats to go and, you know, take a get, get a getaway from the city by going, you know, and be, uh, you know, grassy hills and, and, um, and stream, cool streams. Um, of course, um, that the modern in modern Kyoto, that Fukakusa neighborhood is a very congested modern neighborhood, uh, and you have to go further out to get to the countryside. But in Dogen's era, this was like in the countryside, and he says, like, okay, uh, you know, I'm dealing with the big issues: life and death, uh, delusion and enlightenment, you know, dream and reality. But let me just sit and listen to the rain. Yeah, and that that let's just be overwhelmed by that calming effect. Of course, the rain itself. If it's, if it's pouring in in a, in a grass hut um, and the grass is deep, I mean, that, that can be a little disturbing because, you know, it can, uh, it can be overwhelming uh, um, uh, challenge maybe to deal with that. But at the same time, it's very comforting. It's, it's the quietude. It's the, um, uh, the darkness in the sense of the mystery of the Dharma. Um, and, uh, and we just relinquish it. And, um, the um, and it, it, it that's the refrain that we see from a number of these kinds of poems where in the end you just go to the simple depiction of nature. I got the idea that uh, it was going back to nothing is better than taking a step back. It's that right. that that's, that same refrain. He uh, in this uh, poem by Dogen, he. Uh, he loses his way, and maybe some of that losing the way is what we've seen in earlier poems, where there's that bit of braggadocio or sort of announcing their uh, one's attainment. Uh, and I was feeling that personally. Last night I felt I was writing something really important that was going to get Trump out of office. No, I was writing something important to me, but then I felt compelled to watch the basketball game, I, <laughs> the, the, the step away. And Miami won. Yeah, great, I, I think so. And, uh, but, uh, so, so it's the taking, he, he moves back. He, I think a lot of what we've been reading today is making an important proposition and then moving back. And each, everything is an interlude. You're doing one thing, you take the step back and nothing's better than that, than pulling away and going into the grass hut. 
Okay. I, I, I have uh, another take on it. Um, he's in the moment listening to the rain, even though he's still within the self-constructed structure of self, but he's aware deep in the grass of his hut. Uh, both both the, the depth of what's around him and his own structure that he has constructed. I apologize for interjecting, but um, <clears throat> as moderator, I, I, I personally like to say that at this moment, maybe nothing is better than going to the bathroom for some of us. Touche. <laughs> uh, so let's... Um, how do you want to work this with the breakout? Or maybe well, what we have to do is we have to first. I have to stop sharing the screen. So just to let you know that's okay. going to happen uh, because the controls were not visible. Um, what we need to do is that uh, you, Dr. Hine, will take your break shortly because you're not going to be in the breakout rooms, and uh, the software will just give me a suggested number of rooms. And uh, we will go with that. How long would you like us to be in those rooms? Well, I, I, you know, I think people uh, are also eager for their own break. So maybe like 10 minutes and then take the half hour break. So we reconvene around 3.45. Okay. And, and in their 10 minutes, what would you, what, is there a particular well, I think, um, question? You know, um, uh, maybe discuss that last poem. I think two interpretations. I find them compatible, but... You know, maybe people have other interpretations of that poem or a, a relation to Step Back. And then uh, looking ahead, you know, uh, because when this was, uh, we were first dreaming up the workshop, um, I was uh, asked about a book I had written on uh, Bob Dylan some years ago. So at the end, I have three uh, Bob Dylan lyrics, which I'm happy to discuss, or maybe maybe people want to stick with, uh, with Dogen. Maybe we'll get to maybe just a little bit of that at the end. But, you know, just think ahead of, like, uh, what we do in part two. Um, looking over the, the handout one way or the other. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to adjust according to uh, ideas anybody has. Um, okay? Is that okay? okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Right. So so, I'm going to check out right now. Is that okay? Uh, that's fine so that you're not pulled into the breakout rooms. Okay. So uh, uh, we'll connect. We're, we're going to reconvene at a quarter to four. Okay. Uh, and I'll be on before that. I mean, we will not close the room. So you can okay. come back anytime after the breakout rooms. Okay, thank you so much. Thank okay. you. So uh, let's see how we do here. Uh, we have um, 32 people. Let's make eight rooms uh, so that we have four per room. I hope that's all right with everyone. And now let's go.